You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Like I was born white in this country. What does that mean? What privileges did that afford me? What fears did that, yeah. you know, what paranoia have I inherited? Like, you know, <laughs> it's endlessly <laughs> fascinating. This is The Backdrop. I'm Kevin Blyer. Will Arbery has pulled off an impressive feat this past year. Not just that his play, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, landed on most of the top ten lists, take your pick, although he has done that, in that he's managed to write a political play that is celebrated not only by fans of great writing and goers of great theater, the latter an often left-leaning crowd, but it's also by the conservatives who have seen it, well, is embrace the right word? Let's say is also not considered an easy-to-swallow liberal theatrical experience. How's that? It's about the 2017 reunion of a group of academics at a conservative Catholic Great Works College, the fictional Transfiguration College. But it's really about the world that they see crumbling around them and the debate they have in a Wyoming backyard about just how screwed we all are. As one character, a young hell-bent-on-heaven woman named Teresa puts it, there's a war coming, dude. She's a Bannonite, you quickly realize. And by the supporting evidence she offers to support her thesis, you feel she might be right. Well, she's definitely right, but she might be correct as well. And Will took pains to not reflexively correct her rightness with a chorus of leftness. He doesn't surround her with more appealing, more eloquent liberal characters perfectly situated nearby and loaded for bear to snipe at the soundness, or lack thereof, of her arguments. He lets her be heard. We'll talk about why and how Will Arbery does that in this here Backdrop Eavesdrop. Well, I'll go ahead and give it a go since we're on the clock already. Uh, <laughs> Will Arbery, you're the playwright of Heroes of the Fourth Turning, a play which is hot off the presses on pretty much everyone's end-of-year top ten list. Uh, New York Times, Vulture, welcome to the well, Backdrop. Thank you for having me. Uh, and in that spirit, might I ask, what exactly is your backdrop, uh, your biography? And actually, here's my preemptive follow-up. How did the son of two conservative Catholic professors end up being a bearded, bespectacled Brooklynite and <laughs> shock horror becoming a playwright? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I grew up, as you said, with two Catholic conservative intellectual parents and I had seven sisters I have seven sisters and uh, I was the second to youngest and I think yeah as as wonderful as it was um, to grow up in that family and I grew up mostly in Texas I think that I think I was planning 
a form of escape for a, a while. I used to have dreams where I was just like floating down into New York, even though I had never <laughs> been there and didn't really know what it looks like. Or just up since it's north, but yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, but from the sky, I was ah, really like falling yes. from the sky like into New York and I was just like longing for it from a very young age. And a lot of that came from my love of film. I was a film buff from the time I was a little boy and I just wanted to... <laughs> I, you know, okay. like the Little Mermaid, I wanted to go where the people were. <laughs> you said you were a film buff. Mm. You're young. Why didn't you become, say, a, a graphic novelist or a screenwriter? Why plays? Well, I'm in the process now of, of becoming more of a screenwriter. And and it's always sort of been like part of the long con <laughs> was to get Establish to yourself as a, yeah. a real writer. I think that there's something that like playwriting uh, allows for is is for a really specific voice to be introduced to the world and yeah I mean you know theater is is a is so good to the playwrights they own the copyright and you can really tell exactly the story that you want to tell and um, I think once I didn't really learn that until <laughs> later and I think the impulse more like when I was in college was was just like, well, I can do this right now. I don't have a camera. I don't, you know, I'd, I've never had the resources to make film, but I can get my friends together and, and put things on in a room. So it started with that. And There's then, a barn down the, by the river. And yeah, on a show. yeah, yeah. And then I fell in love with it. And, I, and then I just wanted to, I just became obsessed with it and wanted to make beautiful things for both mediums. Uh, it's just that theater, theater became more of the priority throughout my 20s. What was your first play? The first play that I wrote? Yeah. Well, the first play I ever wrote was actually in high school, and it was called The Box, and it was about <laughs> homeless people discovering a box and having a debate about whether or not to open it, and then it becomes this huge Beckett-like existential thing about whether or not to open this box, and people die over it. So and there's <laughs> a, a Pandora's box, Schroeder's cat kind of thing going on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next play I wrote was the next year, and that was called The Briefcase, and it was the exact same plot, <laughs> just with a lot more characters. And <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Look, the, it's all about recycling these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I started off with a container uh, fetish. And then <laughs> yeah. Have you gone back and read either of those first two plays in your adulthood. I have, yeah. And what did you think? I wish I had changed more than I have. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the quality of the writing has gotten better, but a lot of the the fascinate, like the big questions are still very much the same. Well, the big yeah. questions stayed the big questions, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The big question of Heroes of the Fourth Turning, if I were asking, is what use are arguments about salvation when we can't even withstand arguments over gun control and, I don't know, the merits of Bojack Horseman? Answer, maybe some use. But especially when that trusty old saw, you're entitled to your own opinion but not your own facts, has evolved, transfigured, if you will, into, screw you, these are my own facts, and not only are they mine and fake and made up, but you can't have them. Welcome to the no-empathy zone. Something like that. Point is, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this play, and yeah, the playwright might be the better authority here. To that end, what's the backdrop of Heroes of the Fourth Turning? Um, and here's my other preemptive required follow-up. I read somewhere that you thought it might turn out to be an evil play. <laughs> there was a time when I was worried that uh, I was writing this play mostly in 
like 2017 and the early part of 2018 and and the level of discourse in the country was so uh, I mean this this is nothing new to anyone it was so polarized and the idea of giving a platform that goes uncontested to conservative voices I was I was just worried that it was gonna make the world a worse place or something like that you know that it was that it was not going to do anything in quotes that's a lot of pressure for a play especially one with a relatively simple plot of wait what's the plot again what is the play yeah heroes of the fourth turning is a play about a group of four young people in a backyard in wyoming and they've just attended the inauguration of the new president of a tiny Catholic great books school, um, which combines wilderness training and like a classical core curriculum. And she's the first female president. She's the mother of one of the young women there. The other three are alumni of the school and they've come back to see the inauguration and basically they're waiting for her to show up and they've been drinking and they all have a history with each other and, and, and they just start talking right so that's the plot which brings us to the point you said that the play was meant to trouble what do you mean by that i think what i meant by that was that a lot of the art that i see created these days and championed um, has a very clear political message and i often feel as though the artist is taking great pains to make their own politics very clear even if there are elements of the piece that are troubling, like ultimately you leave feeling like you know exactly where it stands. And I wanted to create a piece that invited anyone in who wanted to be challenged and didn't leave anyone with a a clear answer or moral. That is evident, I think, to anyone who sees it, and even those who might not have been inclined to go to a piece of theater. As I understand it, R.R. Reno, the editor of First Things, said of your characters, they disagree among themselves in profound ways, but there's no liberal reassuring the audience by correcting them. Um, that's a pretty revolutionary choice in the theater in 2020, and it was a choice to do that? Oh, yeah. That was probably the... To just let it stay there, present an argument and not declare whether it is correct or incorrect. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just felt that there had to be something useful in that. Um, I mean, in, in showing... In its rarity, if anything else. Yeah. If nothing else. Yeah. And the way that the conversations work, I mean, we're so, like, so many of them are public or on social media or being had by, like, pundits who are very aware of what the other side thinks and and anticipating each other's arguments or being more diplomatic or poking into the wounds. And I just thought, you know, what about just simply sitting with people who consider themselves to be in a safe space and hear how they actually talk to each other and just provide like a level of access that, yeah, I guess we don't normally get. It's not something we normally get. Perhaps because Will Arbery isn't a playwright we normally get. Someone who has lived with these characters and knows them well enough, loves them dearly enough, not to vilify them just to please an audience thirsty for indictment. Does your particular background give you the political cover to write something like that? Um, Political cover. What does that mean? Uh, I just mean, (laughs) does it make it more palatable to people knowing that you come from Texas, for example? Um, Do you feel compelled to alert to them in the liner notes and otherwise that you have a unique and particular and specific background in presenting these characters and not undercutting them at the same time? Mm. Um, I think it helped 
people to know that. Um, you know, I would be fine with them not knowing that. You know, like Playwrights Horizons, which produced the play, gives the artist the ability to write a program note. And ultimately, in the interest of sort of taking care of people who were going to be encountering something quite shocking in a lot of cases, um, I decided to say, you know, I grew up with these people. I know these people. Um, I, I love them, and it's complicated. Um, but I, but I would hope, you know, I'm sure that there were a lot of people who saw it who didn't read the program note or who didn't care what was in the program note. And, you know, like I, the, so much of this has been about like how can I let people encounter it on their own terms rather than giving them clues about my own biography or my own positions to make it easier for them. And how can we just encounter each other? Because that's the challenge, isn't it? Can we confront a contrary viewpoint, not our own, and reckon with it, without being broken by it, triggered by it, or troll it on Twitter? And yeah, can we? Empathy as a subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, I could talk about it all day, because mm -hmm. I think that is the subject of 2020. You have chosen to make this about intellectuals, academics. Mm -hmm. Most of the plays that we have encountered in the last few years have taken as their subject matter you know, Rust Belt characters, working class characters, to try to understand them in the Trump era. Uh -huh. Because coastal elites, for example, find it easier to empathize with them. Mm -hmm. How did you decide to make this play about intellectuals having intellectual arguments about politics? Yeah. Well, I think that part of it was just, you know, when I would see the news articles about things like Trump's America, coal mining country, and... Uh, Hillbilly elegy and all these things. Um, yeah. I, you know, I was interested in it, but I felt like there was this whole other side to things that wasn't getting talked about as much. Um, I mean, it was, you know, it was over 60 million people, so they can't all be those coal miners, you know. And um, I think that the, the voting base is a lot less of a monolith that you know like so so many people were trying to provide like the like it was these people ultimately who who made it made the thing happen but i think you know the fact of the matter is like my my play is not trying to be like this is the definitive thing about the trump voter it's more about like a specific group of people who made a tricky choice calculation um, yeah yeah and you know the american pro-life movement has a lot to do with that and from where i was sitting like I had a lot to learn about the Catholic small magazine culture, people who um, actually provide a great deal of like intellectual scaffolding to the wider conservative movement and whose theories and obsessions and rationalizations sort of filter eventually into the ears of someone like Tucker Carlson, who then spreads it out much more widely. And so like... Um, it starts with highly educated, passionate people who have like a lot more power than than it, you know, just the, the way that the information is disseminated. It eventually gets into talk radio and stuff, too. It's think tank people, you know, it's think tank people and university people and small magazine people. They're really, really important to this whole thing. Ecosystem. Yeah. And they're really, really smart. Um and um, it, it does nobody any favors to, like, ignore them or lump them in with, like... I mean, that's what they want you to do, honestly, is lump them in with, like, the everyman. Or, or like, focus on the everyman and don't look at the man behind the curtain. Sure. Yeah. Sure. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We interviewed Sam Hunter on this podcast, and he said that his plays at their best are an experiment in empathy. Your characters in your play, Teresa says liberals are addicted to empathy. Uh, Emily states that her pain is hers and hers alone. Your characters seem to suggest that empathy is either an overvalued or undervalued trait. Do you feel like it's something we should aspire to? Greater empathy? I'll go ahead and put my cards on the table. I will say that as a writer, I mentioned this to Sam as well, I think that empathy is becoming an increasingly scarce skill to have and that we aren't good at truly being empathetic with other people's plights and other people's perspectives because of this partisanship. It's every man and woman for herself and himself. I don't, there's no purchase in me trying to put myself in your shoes to understand you. I just have to pull on my side of the string in this tug of war. Mm. Um, But as a writer, I find that difficult to overcome because when I write, and I write a character trying to make a point, I find myself thinking even the viewer, him or herself, isn't going to be empathetic enough to put him or herself into the shoes of my characters. Mm. So I need them to be less subtle. Mm. more explicit Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's where great art lies I think great art lies somewhere in the ability to say a sophisticated argument without declaring the answer Mm -hmm. which is what I think your play does quite well it's a long way of saying um, do you think our decreased amount of empathy makes it difficult in your job as a writer Um, when an audience comes into your comes to your play Mm. and they've spent 23 hours of the day hearing people not be empathetic to each other. Mm. They're not immediately inclined to say, all right, I'm willing to be won over by these characters. Their defenses are up in ways that they weren't, say, 20 years ago. Yeah. Am I overstating things? The answer could be yes. No, it's it's just, it's interesting to me because I think part of what I was very intentional about with this piece is, um, and I think this has a lot to do with like what the role of theater is and the way theater is perceived and so that might be very true what you're saying about a a decrease in empathy in our our day-to-day lives but then i think that despite that theater still has you know a reputation for being this place where you go to feel empathetic and that can often feel very like anthropological it can lead to a sort of strange feeling like you've done some sort of civic duty when you actually haven't because you've just like encountered the other for a couple hours that's a great point um and i just really wanted to it's not like i wanted my play to be in opposition to that but i wanted i wanted that that theater going impulse to be put under the microscope and and watch it sweat a little bit because i i basically what i wanted to do was push past empathy to the much more difficult terrain of love we, which, yeah, if if there's a decrease in empathy, then there's definitely a decrease in <laughs> love <laughs> happening. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you know, part of it, too, is I, I feel like the, the word empathy was a word that I was, like, hearing a lot over and over and over again, and I was just sort of like, well, everyone seems to have different definitions for this yeah, word. Like, we haven't really talked about what this word actually means. Like, no one can agree on what it actually means, mm-hmm. so why don't we just talk about love is basically how I Fair feel. Fair enough. Yeah. 
On that note, I sh- we should end the podcast. I won't. <laughs> I won't. Not quite yet. <laughs> a lot of the reviews of your plays have said some version of, you know, he's not easily pegged as a playwright. And I share that. I have long taken pride in my feeling that I'm not easily pegged. It used to be a virtue to be able to flex different muscles, mm. uh, to have an open mind to some degree. Now I do wonder, in my experience, if I'm being judged because I'm not, as I said, tugging strongly enough in this tug of war because mm. everyone's declared their sides. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, I'm trying to offer experiments and empathy, the way Sam Hunter suggests it, but also offer rational reason arguments about why we do disagree. I think I understand the arguments on both sides. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with them, but I understand them, and presenting them used to be virtuous. And it's here that I, your podcast host, Yammered on and on, making no sense, until Will, empathetic, loving person that he is, well, let me start over. Not sure exactly where I'm going with this question. (laughs) So I've cornered myself into a nice commercial break. Boom. (laughs) It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Okay, okay. I wanted to ask Will about being judged as being that guy, the straight white male playwright who wrote that play where conservative Catholics have their say, whether he was concerned about being on the receiving end of that judgment. And yeah, turns out he wasn't, at least not when it came time. You have said in this era, you like being evaluated on the grounds of your identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Is it a matter of being assigned a point of view when you write, that's helpful to you? Um, I, no, I just, I really like the feeling of knowing how I'm being evaluated as like a citizen of this country. And I feel like a lot of work has been done recently to sort of explode the myth of like the white male writer being like the neutral definition of a writer like that's like yeah that's the standard that's just a writer and everyone else is like a woman writer a black writer that does need to be exploded you're right yeah and so i i have found great inspiration and exhilaration in knowing how it is that i'm being perceived it's information that's Ah, like really useful to me and really inspiring not that i would ever want my work to be easily categorized or the the work to be just be it would be sad to me if it was just dismissed on the grounds of me being a straight white man but i also think that the the consciousness that i'm bringing to the writing i don't know it makes it makes me better it makes me a better writer and i think it makes the work unneutral. You know, it makes it right. Uh, it's a it's a guaranteed perspective, a yeah. guaranteed point of view yeah. that you can you can elaborate on, that you can investigate yourself. Yeah, while you're writing your plays. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I just find it really helpful. I, I feel like, uh, for example, Black American writers have to have this weird responsibility placed on them to constantly be speaking to the black experience and white writers never do and 
I find that challenge exhilarating. Yeah, like I was born white in this country. What does that mean? What privileges did that afford me? What fears did that, yeah. you know, what paranoia have I inherited? Like, you know, <laughs> it's endlessly fascinating. And uh, You were born white. You were born male. You were also born Catholic, so to speak, mm-hmm. in that you were raised in it. You have also said that when realizing that you were unique and choosing now to investigate what it means to be Catholic and to be of the Catholic faith, that to deny yourself your own particularity was not what the world was asking of you. Mm-hmm. And I found that sentiment entirely inspirational. Mm. Because what you're basically saying is I get to live a life of my own integrity, to have integrity, to be who I am. I have the right to investigate what it means to be that from my own unique perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that the the fear with writing heroes in the way that I wrote it was always at least partially tied up in the fear that people would think that, you know, like, I am a conservative and that this is like a conservative yeah. propaganda piece or something, you know, <laughs> like something like that. and. And instead, it was a long process of just sort of letting that fear go and just being very forthright about the world that I grew up in grew and up in. these people who are still in my life and whose voices I gladly engage with and listen to. Uh, yeah, it was very freeing to stop being afraid of telling people where I came from. Sure. Yeah. Will has written this play about politics and religion at a time when people, by the numbers, are getting more political and less religious. Or maybe that's a distinction without a difference? I know that just over the holidays, David French wrote a column about how politics is the new religion. Do you think that's true? What do we find in politics that might be replacing religion? Well, I would think it would be a sort of tribal yeah. instinct, an impulse to band together, put up a wall. I uh, think that's right. I think, tri- spears, yeah. I think tribalism explains so much in the world, Yeah. period. Yeah. Full stop, exclamation point. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an instinct that, that we, we have. We want to know who our people are. Um, yeah. And because the world is so, or can feel so uh, fragmented and diffuse and digital, we've started to, I don't know, like install these like, spotlights in our (laughs) in our eyes that like search out each other's beliefs and we are like constantly shining that light on each other to figure out who our people are (laughs) the spotlight people sounds like a decent premise for a play or an episode of black mirror but will's already got his next project how far along are you in you hateful things um i am I, you know, I have a draft that I'm excited about. I've been talking. I just, just had a meeting with the director about it. Do you finish a draft before you show anyone? Yeah, but with a piece like that, which is wading into such difficult territory, I usually just have to get actors together, find, find a reason to get people in a room and hear it out loud. There's, like, different stages with being a playwright. Like, there's, like... Yeah, there's like the table read, there's like the public reading, and then there's like when you actually feel comfortable like sending it out to literary managers to consider for their season. And those are all like very different stages for me. Yeah. Paper or laptop? Laptop. But, oh man, I wish that I could just speak it out loud. I hate staring at the screen. (laughs) I don't, writing is, (laughs) I, I struggle with... I struggle with the motivation to write sometimes. And so I wish that I could just like walk around and speak plays out loud um, because staring at the screen, I find really um, depressing. 
you know, there are people that do pace and write. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of this. Although I think it happened in the 50s and they were, you know, chomping on cigars and yeah. dictating to a secretary. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. After a period, one space or two. One. You act like, how dare I ask such an, <laughs> well, an absurd I've heard, question? I've heard, like, weird wisps of rumors of, like, this two-space thing, and I don't understand it at all. Who's taking What is That this? is because <laughs> you, sir, are a young man. You've heard yeah. tell of the two spaces back in the days of yore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I was just sort of like, what is this? I didn't <laughs> even know this was a thing. Yeah. Oh, well, like, I'm not you... even going to be, begin to ask you about the Oxford comma then. Um, <laughs> oh, de- well, yeah. I, mean, I definitely always use the comma because okay yeah because it's required because it makes sense to it makes sense to me yeah i mean otherwise you, there's so many more opportunities for misunderstandings misunderstandings yeah. yeah that's true yeah it just doesn't look great does it not yeah but i know what you mean <laughs> i know what you mean i'm a man who wants to have let words mean things so yeah. i should get on board with the oxford comma at all times the truth of the matter is i do and don't uh, it depends on what i'm trying to say Mm, which I, I am I am deliberately inconsistent. Oh, cool. Which is probably not helpful to anyone who reads anything I write. How many times have you had an idea and you thought to yourself, that's good enough, I won't forget it, and then you don't write it down, and then the only thing that you remember is that you forgot it? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, the sad thing is that if that's happened... I've forgotten it. <laughs> like I, I'm sure that there's stuff that... I'm sure that happens all the time. Yeah. What's your favorite part of the process? The about to write, the writing, or the having written? You already told me that you hate looking at that blank screen. <laughs> um, well, the worst is definitely about to write. Yeah. There's no feeling worse in the world than like knowing that you have to write. I'm actually in that stage right now <laughs> for something. And I'm like... Uh, you know, it's horrible. I don't know. If, is there anything I can do to help? I, I, no, I just have to do it. There's, <laughs> there's, I, I don't mean this to sound weird, but my favorite part of things is making them. And you mean the production process? Yeah. Yeah. I really sure. love rehearsing. I really love collaborating. I like all three of those things you mentioned have different kinds of pain associated with them for me, but it all goes away once we are in a room together, like actually making it. And then there's nothing that compares to the pain of an audience coming in and just eating it <laughs> uh, and, and, and digesting it improperly and all sorts of oh, things. Oh man, so, but... you want to take them by the lapels and say, this is what I meant. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but rehearsal for me is, is a form of writing and is sure. the best kind of writing. Sure. Yeah. And that's often what I, when I find that I'm doing the smartest rewrites or the most inspired, like, New material is when well we're to rehearsing. circle back to the beginning. Then I think that's why you write plays. Yeah, you have that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, to circle back to Heroes of the Fourth Turning, there's still that unresolved question, Teresa's question, as daunting in 2020 as it was in 2017. Is there a war coming, dude? <laughs> oh, um, I have no idea. Okay, I good. Mean, yeah, I know good. That that's a good of, way to start the year. Yeah. Um, there's well, a lot of people who think that there are. <laughs> I know. That there, that there is. That there is. Coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel the rise as well. There's something happening out there. Uh, Will Arbery is the playwright of Plano. Evanston Salt Costs Climbing. Evanston, let me start that again. It's a hard one. It's yes. a tough title. <laughs> really? You know that's a tough title. It's hilariously tough. <laughs> you know why I need to do I need to put the emphasis on salt. That's how I can get through it. 
Evanston salt costs climbing, right? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wheelchair and Heroes of the Fourth Turning recently in an acclaimed production at Playwrights Horizons. And soon enough, You Hateful Things, plural. We're all looking forward to that. Will, thank you. Thank you. That's Actually, great. I should say, Will, peace be with you, right? Yeah, yeah. Pox There you go. <laughs> and also with you. Or is it, and also, also with your spirit. I think they just changed it. Yeah, they changed it. it, yeah. See? You know your stuff. Yeah. Anyway, thanks. <laughs> thank you. Whether you'll consider it a triumph of a play or a godforsaken sacrilege, go see Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Details at willarbery.com. And keep an eye out for Will's next You Hateful Things. If you enjoy the backdrop, what would Jesus do? Uh, hard to say. But you could tell your friends and subscribe and review us. That would be the Samaritan thing to do at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. The Backdrop is produced by Nella Vera, edited by Nella, and by me, and part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.